Continuing in the Great Escape, this is our walk through the book of Exodus. Last week in our message, which was titled Sanctified Unto God, we saw the importance that God placed on the people of God being not only clean physically, but sanctified or set apart spiritually. It is this aspect of godliness that the Lord requires for us to be in fellowship with Him. Last week we examined our lives against the standards set forth by God's Word and were given a chance to shift our focus off of ourselves and onto Almighty God. It's this type of submission and change that allows us the access to the Lord, that the abundant life God has in store for us and planned for us. Uh, this week, we will witness some of the results of this access in our message today, which is titled, The Presence of God. And let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity, God, to bring your word. And I know uh, that, Lord, I have prayed diligently and studied, Father, and I'm prayed and asked that you would speak to me. And, uh, Lord, I believe that you have, and I'm asking you now that you would speak through me. Father, the words that I share would not be influenced by my thoughts, but, Lord, best uh, guided by the Spirit. Remove the human element, Lord, that you might be heard from today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus chapter number 19. We're going to be in verses 16 through 25. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 25. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Okay. So as God promised this, or this, notice this is on the early on the third day that people begin to feel the ground shake and they see this mountain engulfed with a supernatural storm. Okay. So take into consideration, right, that the fact that uh, the details that are here, the detail of it being the third day is not just inconsequential. The dawning of the third day is not a coincidence. Right. There is uh, something there and the third day is synonymous with restoration and it's also synonymous with redemption. In 2 Peter 3.8, uh, inspired, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, Peter writes this in 2 Peter 3.8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. He says, if you're not going to miss, if you don't miss anything, if you miss anything, just, he said, learn this one thing is what he's saying. I can't think how to say that. <laughs> you get the gist. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Okay? So basically, our days what we consider to be a day. God's day is equivalent to a thousand of our years, right? And God's, and our thousand years is equivalent to God's day. So using that formula, if we take that formula of a thousand years and a day, and we consider the fact that it's talking about a three-day period, for you and I, if you take a thousand years and you make 2,000 years, well, Jesus Christ died about 2,019 years ago. We're in around that range right there. So we see what's happening here is a dawning of a third day, okay? Meaning that there is a third thousand years that's relevant that's coming, okay? There's something called the millennial reign of Christ, and guess how long that is for? One thousand years. Look at what it says in Hosea 6.2. After two days will, you re will he revive us in the third day. He will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. That's 786 years before Jesus Christ dies on the cross and also pointing to the future. It was the third day when Esther approached the king to save her people and restore the nation in Esther 5.1. It was the third day of the month when the temple was restored in Ezra 6.15. And again, looking back at the resurrection, back here in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 6, it says, In the end of the Sabbath, this is the third day, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came down and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like light 
lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, ye, for he says, I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. Come see. And that's exactly what God is telling these Israelites. He's saying, look, come to the mountain. Come see. As they stand at the base of the mountain, they see, they see lightning strikes, and they hear the thunder, and they feel the ground shaking, right? Thunder is associated with the voices of God. Listen to this in Psalm 77, 18. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lighteneth the world. The earth trembled and shook. Lightning is associated with the presence of God, a physical presence of God. Look at this in Luke 17, 24. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of, out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be, look at that last phrase of three words, in his day. In his day. There is coming a day which is his day. It's called the second coming of Christ. This is a foreshadowing of the fact that God is going to return in that day, right? This will be a physical manifestation of Christ on the earth. After the thunder and lightning, we see the thick cloud, right? The thick cloud, and we know we studied about the thick darkness. We know that that thickness is actually referencing the close presence or the intimate presence of God. Okay? So the people stand in awe of this thick cloud resting upon the mountain. Thunder and lightning are striking the ground. And as they, as they look at this earthly wonder, which they've obviously seen lightning before, they see thunder before, but they've never seen it in this kind of circumstance. They've never seen it like this. But they're kind of somewhat familiar with it. And now something unusual is going to happen, something that is going to be blow their minds. This deafening trumpet blast comes from heaven, and it shakes them to their core, absolutely overwhelms them. Trumpets show up 104 different times in the Bible. We see the trumpets introducing God's mighty work in Joshua 6.20 when the walls of Jericho come crashing down after the seventh trumpet blast. We see them as Gideon faced the Midianite, the Midianite army, and he had 300 men, and he armed them with a lamp and a trumpet. And guess what? When they blew that trumpet, God brought the victory. We see them at the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 when the church will be called up to meet him in the air on the trumpet blast. We see them at the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 when the trumpet will sound in heaven. And guess what it's going to be doing? Introducing the seven seals, right? We're going to see God bring judgment upon the world through the trumpet. This trumpet blast is so powerful that it will leave the people trembling in fear. Now, Moses is going to jump back in time a little bit. As we look at verses 17 through 19, we're going to go a little bit further back in time. He's introducing us, giving us a little more detail on what's taking place. It says, we see here in, in, Trump, in verse 17, And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. So we see that Moses and the people are standing back at the barriers, basically, that God's established. Because remember last in our last message, he talked about the fact that they were to stand back behind these barriers, not get too close. If anyone touched the mountain, they would actually kill them. What a wonderful truth we see hidden in this verse, okay? Because consider this, what it says. And they stood at the nether part of the mount, right? In this verse, we see that in order for them to meet with God, they had to be willing to leave the camp, right? He led the people out of the camp in order to meet with God. They had to leave their camp. They had to leave their, their comforts. They had to come out of their comfort zone in order to go to where God was. And see, that's relevant for us because many times we want to kind of stay where we are in our lives. We want to continue to do what we've been doing, yet we want to, want to meet with God. God is... Understand, and I'm not saying that God's not with us. He is with us all the time, right? But the intimate presence that God wants for us and the intimate presence that we should desire, right, that's going to come from us getting out of where we're comfortable with and getting uncomfortable with God. Because if the world, if you're comfortable where you are, 
guess what? You're not going to be challenged to become the person that God's calling you to be. Verse 18, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. Look at this. There's smoke just pouring up off the mountain and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Now, there was another mountain that we studied in the past back in Exodus chapter number three, verse number two, we saw this. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire. But there was a difference, right? That bush was not consumed, meaning there was no smoke. It was just burning. Now, so the first one didn't have any smoke. It was not a consuming fire, but this is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, now there's another consuming fire that is pictured in this scripture. In 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, 1, 7 through 10, it says, And and this is unto you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished in everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you as uh, among you was believed. And notice the very last word, last little phrase, in that day, pointing again to the second coming of Christ. So we see here that obviously, historically speaking, God is meeting with the Israelites at the base of a mountain, right? That's we see that historically taking place. But at the same time, it's pictured doctrinally, the second coming of the Lord. And then devotionally, which is how do we apply it to my life? The importance of sanctification, if we're going to be in the presence of God, we need to be simply separating ourselves from the world in order to be in his presence. Now, just imagine what the children of Israel are looking at, okay? If we put ourselves in this place, they're standing back behind this barrier, they're looking up at the mountain, it's covered with smoke, there's like a furnace, it's burning, lightning striking, the whole mountain is aflame, it's just this unbelievable scene, right? In Exodus 24, 17, it says this, And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So this place is absolutely frightening as we look into it. Verse 19, And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. Now that's interesting. Because this supernatural trumpet, when it explodes into the scene, the people are just absolutely dumbfounded and stunned in the moment, right? And then they see Moses cry out to God, and then they actually hear God respond. And what's amazing about this is the fact that they're hearing the voice of God. This is a very rare thing. It's set aside only very, 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 very few folks that actually have that opportunity. In Genesis 3, Adam heard God's voice in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 6... Noah heard God's voice as he instructed him on building the ark. In Genesis 12, Abraham, who became Abram, right? He's instructed that he's going to go to Canaan. In Genesis 35, Jacob was instructed that his name would be changed to Israel. In Exodus 3, we look at God broke 400 years of silence, right? In order to speak to Moses. And now the children of Israel, the whole crowd, everybody there, worthy and unworthy, God's given them an opportunity to hear himself, hear his voice. Hear the word of God. Verse 20. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the, mount, to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Notice he does not hesitate. Remember, we know that scene, what's going on. Right? Everybody's standing back looking, and this thing is on fire. There's smoke. There's a cloud. There's lightning. There's thunder. The ground's shaking. And he just trumps right on up there. No hesitation, right? 
pretty amazing. This gives us an idea. Remember, Moses was not a man of faith in the beginning. He was not a man of obedience. But what we found is over time, he's developed a great faith. He's developed incredible obedience. He does exactly what God asks of him. So what we see here is he's given special access to God. He's called up into a special closeness to God because of the fact that he has great faith and because he's a man of obedience. And we see there is there's a difference. The people are now separated. They're not even allowed to touch the mountain. Yet Moses is going up to the top of the mountain. So the proximity or closeness to God appears to be directly related to the level of faith and obedience. It is this depth of faith that gives him the confidence to be able to walk straight up there. And what happens is here we are as Christians, we sit back and we go, man, I, I want to be close to God. I want to, I want to be in his presence. I want, to be, I, want to have, I want to feel him close to me. But we look in our lives and we say these things, and yet in the moment while we're saying them, we know we have weak faith. Right. And while we're saying these things, we know we're disobedient. We know we're rebellious. So we don't have the spirit that Moses has. We have the spirit of the people, yet we want all the perks. Yeah. Call me to the top of the mountain, God. I know I'm not faithful. I know I don't serve like I should. I know my heart's wrong. I know I live in fear. I know I'm always in doubt. But call me to the top of the mountain. I want to feel your presence, God. And he goes, hey, let's check you inside first. Right. Let's see who you really are, right? How often do we live in fear? For some of us, that's a daily thing. Some of us, it's moment to moment. We live from fear to fear to fear to fear. Fear is a lack of faith. If I believe that God is the controller of my future and he loves me, then guess what? I should not fear. Why is there 365 different references in the Bible, one for every day of the year, that say not to be afraid? Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. Yet many of us, me included, we live in fear. Things come up and we feel like, ah, oh, and we get caught up in the emotion of the moment. And we lose sight of what we should be believing is God is on the throne. And he loves us. And he knows what we're going through. He's never surprised. He's never taken off guard. He always sees it coming. And he's allowing it to take place. And there's a purpose to it. There are hard things that we go through in life. Life has not been easy. And you know what? But the thing is, if I trust that God loves me, he's doing these things and allowing them to take place in my life. And even my bad choices in order to adapt me to become the man or the woman that God's in calling intended me to be for the future. Because there's a work to be done. That God understands what I need to go through. He knows where I need to be fortified. He knows where I need to be broken. He knows where my pride needs to be shattered. He knows where I need to be on my knees because I feel like I cannot stand. Amen. Because my strength comes from him. Amen. And if we realize these things and we embrace them in the moment, instead of letting fear overwhelm us, we can become stronger in our faith. Yes. And we can climb the mountain of God when he calls us. Because his desire is that we all come up. He wants that close presence with all of us. But so many of us don't have it. And then there's rebellion. We know what we should do, but we choose not to do it. It doesn't fit in my life. It doesn't fit in my schedule. It doesn't, it doesn't go the way I want it to go. We have expectations of the way we want our life to be, and we want God to make it work out the way we choose. And in that doing so, we're rebellious against what he's calling us to. God wants all of us to adapt our lives to him, because guess what? He's not going to adapt to us. And as long as we wait on that, we're going to be frustrated. And these areas of rebellion and fear, guess what? This is what the Israelites have been struggling with the entire time. And guess what they will struggle with the rest of the time? The very same thing. And the Israelites are a picture of who? Us. Us. Right? And because of this commandment, right, God understands the people's hearts. He says this in verse 
Number 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people. He says, Look, order them, lest they break through. They come past the barrier unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. He says, Look, go down there and stop them. This is serious business. I'm not joking around. Go down there and stop them. See, if the people disregard the commandments of God and decide to come to Him on their own terms and go past the barriers out of their selfish curiosity, because it says that they just come to gaze, they just want to get a closer look. And or maybe it's just rebellion. The result's going to be death. In our world today, there are countless multitude that are disregarding the commandments of God, exceeding the barriers that he established for us, and they're attempting to get to him based upon their own methods. Be this spirituality, false religion, good works, intellectual understanding, whatever you want to choose. But guess what? The end result is the same. Death. I'm not talking about a physical death in that instance. I'm talking about a spiritual death. Revelations 21.8 says this, but the fearful, notice this word, notice this. He's putting this in here. These are people guilty of sin. Revelations 21.8, he says, those guilty of sin. Notice the first one he gives, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. He says, all of humanity, basically, those of you that have not received Christ, those are guilty of your sins. He says, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, their spiritual death. To where these, this picture we see with the Israelites is a physical death for them, but it's talking about a picture for us, the spiritual death. Verse 22. And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. So the priests here, they're going to give them greater access. And what's interesting about this is that he notices it. He calls them by their title, right? But it's not going to be their title. It's not going to be their role that's going to gain them the access, right? Because he says, look, if you come just by title, but you ain't sanctified, you're going to be dead, brother. You ain't going to make it, right? It will be their life and their practice that will give them access to God. It will be their testimony of how they live and if they are sanctified by God, not the title that they carry. We live in a day and age when pastors have taken the title and they've taken the respect that might come with it and they've abused it for years. And what they've done is they've used it for their own selfish gains. They've done it for their own, their own mortal and, per, and personal carnal reasons instead of doing things for the kingdom of God. And God's holding them accountable. He says, look, you want to have this access to me? You better be right with me. I don't care what your title is because, God's got, you know, the Bible says God's not a respecter of persons. We know this to be a fact. I don't care if you're a richest person in the world. It is irrelevant. Guess what? God is not a respecter of persons. Romans 2.11 says, for he has no respect of persons with God. He's not impressed with humanity. These representatives of God must be found worthy through their lifestyle, not their position. Remember that the role of a pastor is to be a servant leader. Look at what it says in Matthew 7. 22 through 23. Many will say to me, notice the word, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Haven't we used you, God? Haven't we not done amazing things? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You used me as a tool for your own personal gain. You were never surrendered to me. You were never submitted to me. You weren't even called by me. You used me as an instrument of destruction where I should be an instrument of love. You used me for personal gain when you should have been a servant leader. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. All of mankind throughout history and into the future will one day stand accountable to Almighty God. It will be the choice that we make in regards to Jesus Christ that will determine our eternity. 
It will not be based upon our works or our background or our title or anything else. It's solely based upon the choice we make with him. We receive Christ as our Savior by faith or we reject him by faith. Verse 23. Moses said unto the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. says, for thou chargest us to saying, set bounds about the mount and sanctify it. So he says, look, I mean, this, I, you got to love Moses in this situation because he's coming from a place of faith. He's coming from a place of obedience. This is the man that he's become. And what happens is he's now just believes. He's like, look, you know what? I mean, they're not going to do that. They wouldn't do that. And it's, it's, it's interesting because it's this type of innocence and this gullibility that sometimes gets us into trouble as Christians. We believe everybody's good. Right? Everybody's honest. Has anybody ever had that? I mean, I, you know, we always want to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? Oh, yeah. But are there evil people in the world? Yes. yes. Has anybody ever been taken advantage of by any of those people? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Many, many, many times. But again, God is the one. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God is the one. He's the God of justice. My job is to do what I feel called to do. If my job is to love them and they take advantage of me, then they're accountable to God. I need not worry about it because he will take care of them. But Colossians 2.8 says this, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. This is a warning to us. Bottom line, he's saying, look, you guys need to be careful because not everybody that portrays themselves as who they are is who they truly are. And in regards to the Israelites, as we look at this, Jeremiah 17.9 gives us a little bit of an insight into humanity. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Excuse me. Who can know it? Proverbs 21.2 says this, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Men may, hey, man, I'm going to do this. I feel led to do this. And people follow based upon their carnality. But God knows the hearts of these people. He knows their wickedness. And you know what he's actually doing? He's actually working to protect them from themselves in this instance. That's why he sent Moses down. And here, look at this, verse 24. And the Lord said unto him, away, get thee down. He says, look, right now, hurry up. Get thee down, thou shalt come up. And he says, that thou and Aaron with thee, but let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. God understands their weakness, and he's protecting them from themselves. Guys, God knows our weaknesses. In our lives, if we were to think back, how many times God intervened on your behalf? Amen. In the choices you made, Amen. the places you went, the people you chose to be with, how many times did God intervene if you look back in your life and go, but by the grace of God, but by the grace of God. And if you've been alive for any time at all, I'm telling you, you know it's been a lot of times. I can look back, buddy. I'm, I can make a book out of all the times God stepped in and was like, knucklehead, stop, right? But thankfully, he was there for me, and he loves me in spite of myself. God loves us and knows that we are our own worst enemies. That's why he's constantly working to establish boundaries for our behavior. And many times we think the boundaries are for God, the fact that God's establishing that they're for him, for us to live. But no, God's establishing these boundaries for us, for our own protection. He's trying to protect us from us because our humanity is destructive and we have an enemy that wants to destroy us and uses us against us. Verse 25, so Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. Okay, so he sends him down. He says, look, be an emissary for me. Talk to the people. Let them know this truth because guess what? They don't realize. There is going to be a matter of time. They're going to want to get a closer look and a closer look and a closer look. And eventually one of them is going to step past that barrier. And then no more of them are going to come. And when they get close, guess what? They're all going to die. Don't let them make this mistake. What's really interesting is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, God makes a comparison between Mount Sinai that we're at right now and Mount Zion. Mount Zion, the mountain of God. Mount Sinai is earthly and physical, while Mount Zion is heavenly 
and spiritual. Mount Sinai is in a dry, desolate desert, while Mount Zion is in the fullness of the city of the living God. Mount Sinai is a place of fear and trembling, while Mount Zion is a place of love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai, meeting with God, was reserved for Moses and Moses alone, while at Mount Zion there is a countless number assembled before the throne of God. Mount Sinai had the guilty standing in fear. Well, Mount Zion has the just made perfect. Mount Sinai has Moses as a mediator for the people. While Mount Zion has Jesus as a mediator for all mankind. Mount Sinai was put forth, put forth an old covenant that was ratified by the blood of animals. Well, Mount Zion has a new covenant that was ratified by the blood of our Savior. Mount Zion was all about barriers and exclusion. Mount Zion is about invitation and inclusion. Mount Sinai was all about the law. And Mount Zion is all about the grace. We see certain differences, obviously, between the two mountains. But guess what? There's some, some similarities as well. We don't approach Zion as the Israelites did Sinai. But there are some aspects that we need to apply to both. First, we must receive God's word. Second, we must be set apart. Third, we must be cleansed. Fourth, we can only come after the third day. Fifth, we must respect God's boundaries. Sixth, we must restrain the flesh. That's a hard one. Because that flesh wants what it wants. And it will push you. And the enemy will feed the flesh. And the more we open ourselves to that, the more destructive life becomes, the more pain we suffer, the more unrest we deal with, the more, the more anger, the more doubt, the more fear is allowed to work into our lives. The more I submit to my flesh, the more danger and destruction I'm going to face. And the more I submit to God, and the more I maintain the boundaries of God, and the more I restrain the flesh behind the boundaries of God, guess what? I'm safe. Amen. And if I'll sanctify myself, and if I'll set myself apart, and if I'll work on me, and I'll cleanse my heart, God will invite me yes. to the top of the mountain. Amen. We want to be in God's presence, but we don't do what it takes to get it. We want all the perks, but we don't want to put the work in. It's not easy to walk with God. But let me tell you, it's worth it. I've walked in my life when I didn't walk with God, and it was not good. I tried all these things to fulfill myself, and it did not work. And I tried to sell myself on the fact that, yeah, I believe in God. I'm okay. Irrelevant. It doesn't matter if I believe in God. The devil believes in God, and he's in hell, man. The demons tremble in the presence of God. They don't doubt God's presence. They don't doubt his reality. Yet they're not going to go to heaven. It's through surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ and allowing him to be the sanctification and for him to be the way to, to, to the Lord. Bottom line is I spent my life years and years and years. And even after being saved, I spent times in my life searching after the flesh, trying to fulfill me. And I'm telling you, it's a hollow way to live. And it's filled with regret. And when you look at your life, you look back, there's these pictures of your life in different instances that come to mind. And you think of them and you go, man, I lived for God here, but there was... There was that other day, and I, when I look at that one, it burns my heart. And there's one that I see here, man. I was dropping the ball there, man. But God says, you know what? Through all those situations, and every one of those, 
I love you. And I'm calling you. I want you to be with me. Be sanctified. Don't be rebellious. Live for me. Don't live in fear. Walk by faith. And if you'll do those things, just magically, the fear starts to dissipate. The doubt starts to rush away. The darkness starts to clear away and light starts to come in. And you feel the presence of God warm you up. And all of a sudden you go, wow, this is what life should be. And you know what's so scary? Is there's been times in my life when I felt that and you feel so close to him. But then you become prideful. You start to think that you deserve it. And you get comfortable. And what happens is the darkness starts to work its way in ever so slightly. Ever so slightly. Before we know it, we've drifted away from God. Because the things that he told us, he sanctified. Don't live in rebellion. Don't be in fear. We've allowed those things to creep back in our lives. And it's a dangerous place to be. But humanity, as we try to restrain the flesh, that's the battle. That's the battle. And seventh, we must reverence our holy God. If we can apply these truths to our lives, not in theory, (laughs) not in word, but in practice, and we apply them, we can be like Moses and enjoy the beautiful, intimate, restorative presence of God. Doesn't have to be on a special occasion. Guess what? It can be an everyday part of our life. It's up to what we choose. Do I want to live in a way that I am constantly feel like I'm trying to feel my regret and, and disappointment in myself and knowing that God's looking at me saying, you can do so much more? Or do I want to embrace him and live in a way that God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He wants us to succeed, and he's given us all the tools. It's just a matter if we're willing to listen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the message, God, and the truth of what it means to be in the presence of you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for, God, this blessing to be in this church. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God, the amazing Bible that you've given us, Lord. And pray, God, that uh, you'll help us to live a life, Lord, that's not about us. It's not about our personal gain, which will be filled with regret. But God, help us to live in a way that will be pleasing in your sight and one that will glorify your name. God, you deserve glory. You've done so much for us. And every day you prove to us again and again and again that you are so worthy. And in our humanity, we take it for granted. And some days we're not even thankful. We can actually complain to you, which is staggering. But we do. We're an ungrateful people. But God, I pray that you help us. Father, to live in a way that will be pleasing in your sight. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I hear what you're talking about. I mean, I understand the, the principle that you're saying. But bottom line is, I don't know God. I know of God. Guys, 18 years ago, I knew who God was. I believe God existed. But I was not saved. If I were to have died 18 years ago, I would open my eyes in a burning hell not because I was worse than anybody else, but because I did not have Jesus Christ in my life. And what happened was someone took the time to share with me who he was and the fact that he loved me 
right where I was. And he told me that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, every single solitary person on the planet has the same problem, sin. And that sin divided me from him. Divided me from him. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What I earn because of my sin, my wage is a division from God, a second death waiting for me, a spiritual death. But Jesus Christ came and paid the price on the cross to create a bridge with two pieces of wood to give humanity away from destruction to heaven. And there was a day when I chose to receive that gift. It says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is offering that gift to you today, wherever you are. If you're in the overflow room, if you're on the internet, wherever you are. It doesn't take a preacher. It doesn't take anything special. It takes a broken heart and a God that loves and I promise you, God loves you right now. If your heart is broken, he is ready to restore you. And as I'm talking to you, he's dealing with your heart through his spirit. If you're here today and you want to receive him as your savior, you have that opportunity. I'm going to give you that chance right now. It's not a matter of a magic prayer. It's not a matter of a ceremony. This is a matter of a broken heart coming to God with a desire to know him and faith to trust him. And he will save you. He says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be or could be, it's a promise. And he's reaching out to you right now where you are. Now I'm going to give you a chance to pray. If you want to receive him, you can pray this prayer in your heart, in your mind, repeat after me. But remember, it's not the words of the prayer. It's the intention of your heart. Repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I understand that it has separated me from you. You love me right where I am. Thank you, Lord. I come to you broken with a heart, with a desire, with a need for you. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, to come into my heart and save my soul. Thank you for loving me Thank you for saving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.